We are uh, about to enter into uh, the season of Advent next week, and uh, we are at a moment where we celebrate Christ as King. And so uh, we read earlier in our prayer time from a text from Daniel, and I'm going to read now a text from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4 and following. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word of the Lord. I was thinking about the season of Thanksgiving and you know, we're entering that time where we're trying to be mindful of, like, who do I need to give thanks to? And uh, I think there's something in us and all of us that we all want a little bit of credit. We would like a little bit of thanks, right? I mean, a little bit, you know, not, not too much, just some recognition, right? Uh, and, and the challenge is, is that we all want some credit and some recognition, And so most of us don't spend all of our time just thanking people all of the time. So people start to feel left out. They start to feel like they've not been thanked. And and then it's easy, though, when things go poorly, that a lot of blame goes a lot faster than all the gratitude and thanks. But I think about everyone who wants credit, who wants thanks. And um, we have different parts of the year where we try to be mindful of, hey, let's celebrate first responders, let's celebrate our, our frontline workers, let's celebrate our teachers, let's celebrate, um, you know, we have all sorts of things, moms, dads, grandparents. Uh, and, and one of the things that always comes up because people, you know, people like taking credit, and like not taking blame, is it's always true that no matter what happens in our country, uh, whoever happens to be president wants credit when it's good. They don't want blame when it's bad. It's just natural. When you feel like you're in control and power, you want the good celebrations. You don't want the bad blame. And so into this human nature of ours, uh, John is going to write about who deserves some credit, who deserves some thanks. Uh, but it's worth remembering who he's not saying deserves all of that credit and that thanks. And so John is going to write grace and peace from. He does not say grace and peace from the Caesar because that would have been pretty natural. Because grace, blessings, good things, good tidings, peace and not war would have been something that everyone expects the Caesar to provide. Because whether it was Julius Caesar who kind of takes that ownership of that power and the Senate in Rome did not like one person getting all the credit, uh, or Caesar Augustus who comes after him. Caesar is the one who saves you, who delivers you from barbarians, from the tribes of all the edges of the world that aren't as civilized to the Romans. Uh, You expect 
peace is from Caesar. But John does not say grace and peace to you from Caesar or from the Roman Senate or from any of those that had that power. He doesn't say grace and peace to you from a King Herod of Antipas or grace and peace to you from Pontius Pilate or whoever might be the, the prefect over the province. Not grace and peace to you from the high priest. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who will be. And I think it's easy for us to miss that, of the power of who he's saying all things come from, because we also want to attribute peace and grace from from all sorts of other things. So some of us need to hear grace and peace not from the president or the Supreme Court or the Senate. Grace and peace not from... Uh, whoever is in control of Wall Street or the financial district. Grace and peace not from uh, the police or, or the military, or grace and peace not from the Pope or whatever religious leader. Grace and peace from the one who is, the one who was, the one who will be. We talked about singing about the mighty fortresses our God, that foundation. What is it to be called into reminder? Grace and peace to you from God, not from anything else. And so I love the language that John gives us here because he could have just said grace and peace to you from God, but he does use that very special language. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, the one who will be. And that feels like a deliberate echo of Exodus. The divine name of God, Yahweh, that's revealed to Moses, that the people of Israel get to experience. Moses is out in the wilderness. Uh, The the people are living enslaved in Egypt. Moses flees Egypt, he's living in the wilderness, he's working with sheep and he's a shepherd and he sees a fiery bush. He gets the most radical, bizarre mission you could be asked to do, show up to the superpower of the day, go into uh, the powerful place and say, hey, I know that you make a lot of economic activity because of this slave system you've got, you need to let them all go. They're coming with me. We're going elsewhere. God wants to free them. And that's a a crazy mission. Can you imagine going to whoever the Caesars, the Pharaohs, the presidents, whoever the, the leaders are of your era, whoever has power and saying, someone else has power. And they're saying, you need to give up some of yours. And Moses is out there at a fiery bush saying, who on earth am I supposed to say has that kind of power? Who, who can stand up to a pharaoh? Who can speak this way? Tell me your name so I can tell somebody. And God is so powerful that God's like, you're not going to restrict me with a name. If, you give, if I give you characteristics, you're going to say, oh, that's just who you are. Instead, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's a power move. You know, of like, who are you? Tell me so I can understand you. I could put you in a box. Say, you're going to have to experience me. You're going to have to walk this with me. You're going to have to walk up to Pharaoh trusting that I can do something about this. You want an easy name, you're going to have to walk with me. And so that call for liberation, for freedom, for standing up to the empires of the world is the kind of way that we experience God's name and the way that the author of Revelation, John, tells us who it is that deserves grace, 
who deserves our thanks, who gives us grace and peace. And John is very intentional about this because he's writing a whole letter to a bunch of churches who are struggling with, it looks like Rome is too powerful. How on earth could anybody stand up to this mega power? And the whole letter is going to be pictures of beasts of power who are scary, who ask for you to to bend your knee. And instead, what is it to follow a lamb? A slaughtered lamb. And John gets that that is a daring task to invite anybody into. And so he invites us to think on Moses, to think about who God is. So grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. And then it gets to, it feels weird to us. Uh, There's a lot of revelation imagery that feels strange. Here's one of them. Uh, So from from God, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there's a lot of commentary on that phrasing, uh, but seven is like completeness in the book of Revelation. So you get seven bulls and plagues, you get uh, seven churches that are being written to, you get seven spirits before the throne of God, you get a lot of sevens. And so it's just like the entirety, the wholeness of God's spirit, uh, which the church has interpreted to mean uh, the Holy Spirit. So grace to you and peace from the one who is, the one who was, the one who's to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. And so this is where we get kind of that Trinitarian language of this threefold who's giving you this grace and peace. And uh, Jesus Christ gets identified in certain kinds of ways here. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, being a faithful witness takes a characteristic in this letter of in the midst of Roman persecution, potentially. Uh, It wasn't widespread at this moment. The beast was scarier looking Uh, than just always devouring people in this season. But somebody would be hurt. Somebody could be executed. And if it could happen to someone, it could happen to you. And so what is it to be a faithful witness in the face of execution, in the face of people who say they're in power? And so if you want people to live like that, let's talk about Jesus, the one who, who brought teachings, who brought good news, who brought life, even in the face of Rome's most uh, painful and powerful tool to create order. Order. Order through execution. If I crucify you and I publicly shame you, maybe nobody else will stand up to me. Nobody else will try to rebel. And so in the face of that kind of punishment and that kind of power play, Jesus is the faithful witness. And so grace and peace come from that faithful witness. But he's also described as the firstborn of the dead. That's an interesting image. If you think about just firstborn of the dead, that that feels like like a paradox, like these two phrases don't go together. Um, But one of the things that motivates people is fear. Sadly, sometimes more than life and opportunity. There's a lot of like psychology around that people tend to do things that minimize risk more so than things that might gain reward. And so, Death, execution, pain, is what tends to motivate people. And so Jesus is described here as the firstborn of the dead. The death is not the scary end of all things, but the moment in which Jesus becomes firstborn. Firstborn meaning that there's hope that he's not the only born of the dead. 
but that all who believe, who, who walk with him, might join him as being born from the dead. And Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I don't think we can truly appreciate how bizarre that must sound to a Roman at that time. That the, the, these churches who are living in fear are saying, Jesus, the one you executed, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Yes, Caesar. Sorry, Caesar. You report to him. And that would have sounded bizarre to Romans. Like, well, what do we do with you? Because we thought we ended this threat. We executed him. And now we have people saying that he's still, like, he's the ruler? And if you remember in the Gospels, you get this, this picture of Jesus on the cross, and you've got a sign placed over him the king of the Jews. And it's meant to be a mockery. Oh, you think you're king. Look what's happening to you. But John's proclaiming that Jesus, firstborn of the dead, that the death, death could not hold him, and that that kingship is actually the case. Not a mockery, but is true power, true rule. In a world where everybody else wants credit, wants, wants to be the ones in charge, wants to be the ones in power, And John's going to talk about Jesus some more. And I think what's in this is reason for a celebration, for good news, for hope. He's going to talk about why Jesus is worthy. He's saying worthy is the lamb. Why is Jesus worthy of that power? Why is he worthy of that title, of this this kingship of all? I mean, anytime you've seen anybody elevated, maybe you've been in a workplace and somebody got an internal promotion, and they're on your team or something, and you're like, well, why did they get picked? Why, why is this person being elevated? So why is Jesus worthy here? And John's going to tell us a few reasons. He's going to give us three things in this. To him who loves us. It's not a given that people in leadership love anybody other than themselves. Right? There's a natural tendency when you get power to love power, to love the benefits of power, uh, to just want to hold on to that. And if you ever, you know, to use that workplace environment, if you've ever had a boss, a supervisor, if you've ever had someone in your life that's been in a leadership who you can just tell loves the people that they work with, who they serve, who they lead, that is a wonderful place to be in. It's so easy and tempting to fall prey into loving other things like, like money, like the way people treat you? What is it to love others instead? And so in a world where people thirst for power, what is it to rule by loving unconditionally? And I think sometimes because of this image, when we think about uh, kingship, some people like the metaphor of of kind of God as king and, and that language, but sometimes it sounds awful. I mean, historically, we are a nation of people who are like, we don't, we don't really like kings. We don't really like that idea. But what is it to to understand the model, understand the metaphor of someone whose decrees affect the whole land, of whose life and livelihood affect everybody, but one where that's lived out rightfully, where it's lived out to the ideal, where someone who is in charge actually loves and cares for those he rules. And so why is Jesus worthy? He loves. Why is he worthy? He doesn't just love, but he has power. He liberates. 
The text here says, uh, says it kind of interestingly. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, that probably sounds really familiar language-wise. You're like, oh, I'm in church, freed us from our sins. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, but it's kind of interesting that Revelation doesn't talk about this kind of thing ever again in the book. Like, it doesn't talk about freedom from sins in this way. Uh, so it's kind of unique here. Uh, and even though it sounds familiar. But what I think what's interesting is, is that we're not just liberated from our sins in the sense of guilt, but this whole book is about ways in which we are oppressed and which powers rule over us and control us and try to rival God, though they're never actually as powerful as God. But our sins tend to oppress us. Our collective sins especially tend to oppress us. But the way that we, we sin uh, is that we fail to love. And I always try to make that as, as obvious as I can of um, what is sin? It's when we don't love rightly. If the greatest commandment is to love God and love your neighbor, then the greatest way to fail is to not love well. Uh, and that works its way out in all sorts of oppressions, all sorts of bad things that harm people, that hurt people. But what is it to liberate people from their sins, from their restraints, from the things that harm us, that hurt us, that hold us down? Because when we do have greed... It hurts people. It hurts our own souls, but it hurts others that don't have enough. When we, when we have anger that turns to hate, uh, it doesn't just hurt our soul, but it, it tends to start harming other people. And so when Jesus brings us liberation and freedom from our sins, it's not just, oh, I need, a, not, I need to be pronounced not guilty. I need to be freed from the cycle of pain and ugliness that, that just keeps weighing us down. What is it to be loved and then to be freed to love, and to love well? So he's worthy because he loves, because he sets us free uh, through his blood. And then it goes on and says, and he made us to be a kingdom priest serving his God and Father. There's a lot in our culture that wants to make faith be very individualistic. That faith is about you and your own personal journey, like as a private journey, where it just all that matters is you and God. And that's really not anything about the biblical tradition at all. I'm talking about love God and love your neighbor. Like the neighbor part is a lot of this faith journey. It's not just this exclusion, like me and, and God exclusively. Uh, but why does he, he love us? He, he, he frees us so that we could become a kingdom of priests. So that kingdom that, that rightfully recognize Christ's rule, who are organized around love and not hate, not anger, uh, that becomes the model where you live that way in the world, that you then help show the, other, the rest of the world how it is to love and be loved, and that that might help celebrate and make real the lordship of Christ more visibly each and every day. And so uh, that's all something I think is, is easy to see as beautiful and as worthy as, as something you want to get behind. Um, sometimes some teachings feel like, oh, this is a hard one. But like, man, what is it to say that, that the one who rules loves you? He wants to free you from all that holds you down from being able to live and love well. 
and that he wants you to gather with people who rightfully observe Christ's rule and who love God and neighbor together. And so that's the beautiful thing we're invited into. It's not just, though, about what Jesus did, and we already see it there. It's about how do we imitate that? How do we live that out in the world? Because it's not just enough to say, oh, it's great that Jesus did all of those things. Like, if he's Lord, that means it should matter to us, and it should matter to our everyday life, that we should be affected, we should live differently because of this, this revelation. And so how is it that we might lead with love? And so if you have any, everyone has a sphere of influence, you have a sphere where you lead people. Maybe it's in your household. Maybe it's in a work environment or, or here at the church or, or at, at a country club or wherever it might be. When you have the opportunity to make an influence on someone, discern how well am I leading with love? Am I, am I, am I loving the, the opportunity or the power or am I loving the people? Think about how well we can lead with love. Think also about how when we lead with love, how do we help create spaces that others can love well? Because if we don't start that process and we create places where people are fighting with one another and they're, they're separating, they're cutting each other off from, from whatever opportunities and, and it's like, oh, there's, the pie's not big enough. Uh, I saw a great visualization the other day about a, like a pie that was cut into slices and then somebody just randomly cut a slices in the middle of it. Uh, they cut out a regular slice, but in a way that affected all the slices around it. And it's like, when you take things in a way that isn't considerate, isn't think about how it affects others, it, it hurts those around us. And so the way that you lead with love creates an opportunity for others to lead with love. And so think about how you might affect those in your life to better love. I think about how well our cafe on Wednesday nights has been an expression of this opportunity where every Wednesday we have this opportunity to say, we just love you. It doesn't matter who you are, you come in, you are loved. And we hope that you experiencing that love with options, with, with great food and service, all of this, like here's how love is being expressed to you. That that might make a difference in your day where you want to love others better, where you want to serve somebody better, where you want to care for others better. So how does, how does our following of Christ's lordship create opportunities for love to rule even more? Now, uh, the great thing is John knows it's not always visible, this whole loving thing, this whole freedom thing. You still have Rome's in charge, and you still have powers that be. And so he leaves this little entry part of the letter with another image where he closes. He says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be, amen. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the beauty of this Alpha and Omega like image is that God is at the beginning and at the end. All of the other stuff that feels powerful is all just moments in between where we see God is always in control and always in power. Now, there's something in this text that might make you feel a little bit troubled. Um, I, was, I was kind of noticing that uh, the image here about Christ's return and Christ's rule, it says in there in the NRSV translation, 
uh, that when he returns, everybody will see it. Even those who pierced him, and on his account, all of the tribes of the earth will wail. That sounds a little bit like everybody's like, oh no, judgment's coming. You can get that kind of vibe. And there's definitely plenty of, especially street preaching, where that will be the vibe that's given off. That when Christ comes, oh no, I messed up, and people are scared about their sins. Um, But this phrase actually is used quite a bit elsewhere. And he's actually quoting um, parts of Zechariah 12. He's quoting from the Old Testament. In Zechariah, the people of the earth are going to mourn together because they're going to look on Jerusalem, who, who is experiencing the trauma of exile and losing in battle and all of this. That trauma, they're going to look and they're going to realize something wrong happened there. That they were one pierced unfairly. And he's, John's using this imagery to talk to this, these churches and say, the whole world will see Jesus at some point. Jesus' kingship becomes visible. We stop playing this kind of waiting game, and we just get to experience it. But when you see the crucified Lord, when you see the lamb who was slaughtered, when you see uh, the one who was pierced, there is a, a mourning, a crying, because there's a realization of the brokenness that we've been living in. Because there needs to be some truth that happens. And so part of what, ha- how, what happens for restoration, for healing, is people that hurt people need to realize that hurt. We've got to stop. What is it to love? We have to recognize where our problems are, where our sins are. And so what's beautiful is that everybody looks at Christ coming in the clouds and that everybody mourns together because there's stuff worthy of us all mourning together. You watch the news cycles any day, every day, you hear your own personal stories, you hear your friends' stories, your family stories. People have a lot of pain. And when we see Christ as, as an innocent person who experienced the brunt of the worst forces of violence, uh, it is worth recognizing we're going to mourn together. But that cry and that tear is not the end of the story because God is the Alpha and the Omega. And a new day begins. And so... This text invites us to recognize Christ's lordship. And that lordship means that we are in the midst of this in-between where we are called to love, to set free through Christ's blood, um, but also to be hopeful and expectant because it's easy to not be hopeful when the beasts of the world are running around. But what is it to rest in God's alpha and omega, his beginning and end? and that we will all eventually see together. We will all recognize the, the truth of who God is together. And that, that recognition is not about a God who's vengeful and angry, but a God who loves and leads that way. And so as we think today, and as we get towards next week, where we get to go into Advent, where we again think about the return of Christ as, as he initially came and as he comes again, But we also get to celebrate baptisms next week. Uh, And it's the beauty of of saying, God loves you. You you follow Jesus as Lord. He's worthy of that title. He's worthy of that that following. And that we are, as a community, called to live that out faithfully with one another. To lead with love. 
and to recognize Christ's lordship in our midst. And so uh, with that, the beauty of that image from, from John of Patmos, let's enter into prayer resting on God's kingship and rule of our lives. Lord God, we come before you, and I'm sure that there's plenty of things that we need to pray about of, of giving thanks for your many blessings that we, we failed to recognize. Lord, I ask that you might make us grateful, that our spirits might uh, rest and trust in you, and that the way that you have moved in the past, you move again. Lord, help us not to box you in, but to recognize that you are who you are. Lord, I ask that you might also make us mindful of how love should rule in our lives. Help us to, to consider our hearts, to consider our motivations. Lord, let us love like you love. For all who feel unloved, I ask that your love might just pour out over them, that they might just feel uh, the peace and the hope that your love brings. And Lord, I ask that you might just encourage us to, uh, in that spirit of gratitude, to be grateful and to be thankful and to love those in our lives around us, whether the ones that we know our whole lives, or our families, or, or even just the people that we meet each day. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.